0: Religious experience isn't you feel something, you know, like you take drugs and you feel something. It's, it's what transforms your way of being in the world and your way of interacting with the
1: world.
2: Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Mission Hills LA Conversations Podcast. My name is Ryan and I'm the Director of Community here at Mission Hills LA.
1: And my name is Ryan and I'm the Pastor of Mission Hills LA.
2: This week we had uh, a really special treat. We had an in studio guest. Who do we have this week, my friend?
1: We had Peter Rollins
2: probably the smartest man either of a, i will say hands down yeah. confidently the smartest person i've ever talked to yeah.
1: yeah i mean i remember being an undergrad at baylor university sick and bears and sick and bears i went to uh hear peter ron's i'd never heard of him before and this was probably 2007 2008 and he blew my mind. I was just, uh, I was already really interested in the types of things that he would be talking about later on. And so whenever I first heard him speak, I thought, Oh my gosh, this guy, one is so smart. And two is expressing a lot of things that I have been thinking or feeling. He put language, uh, to a lot of that, wow. of, of, of those feelings. So, um, And I think he really continues to do that with a lot of his work.
2: No, I absolutely agree. And I thought it was great. He shared with us how he came into Christianity later in life, similar to you. Yeah. And so it's great. In this interview, we really unpack the freedom that both of you got Mm -hmm. to experience. And I get to share a little bit with how I didn't get to experience that freedom. So um, it's really nice that we get to talk about some of those things in, in sort of a casual setting.
1: Yeah, yeah, and we did a lot of sampling of uh, different things in his work, uh, things that he's writing, uh, the art that he's putting out. Uh, he has a couple of films uh, that are being made uh, probably in this next year. And we really talked through a lot, touched on a little bit mm-hmm. of a lot of different issues. And he yeah. talked about, like you said, his personal life and how he kind of came into Christianity and then actually started uh, the journey of unpacking a lot of the stuff and looking at it differently through the lens uh, personally, but then also what it was like starting his own community. So uh, I think people, uh, I think listeners are really going to find that piece interesting, the personal aspect.
2: No, I I absolutely agree. This is like a nice little, I almost think of it as like a buffet of Pete's work, where we give you a a little taste of so many things but there is just so much content and so many things that you can unpack from his work um i mean even just going to his youtube page and subscribing you can see countless
1: videos and on all of these things we talked Um, about society politics we talked uh, about transference we talked about uh psychoanalysis we we, t- we sampled a lot of things, so uh, I really um I loved having this conversation personally, and I really hope our listeners uh, enjoyed it as much as as we as we did so
2: yeah, it was absolutely fantastic. Um, so we really uh we're really thankful to have Pete in the studio with us today. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. We want you to know that uh just recently uh, I think as as of yesterday or today, yeah. actually today, yeah. live on Pete's uh, website is the new Atheism for Lent series that's going to be coming out. One of yep. his probably. I would say one of his better programming options. I mean, it's hard to say, but this was just a really strong programming option. He's been doing it for a long time. Yeah.
1: It's just, it's time tested. Uh, People are uh, all over the world will be doing this. Uh, We're going to try to get a group together in LA in the spring whenever uh, Lent comes around. So if you're in the LA area and you go on Pete's website and you're interested in working through some of these ideas in a community setting, um, we're going to hope to have a community working through this. Stuff live. We're going to incorporate it on the podcast and, and maybe even try to get Pete out here in person for a couple of those uh, atheism for Lent days here in Los Angeles. So that's going to be really great. You can look forward to, uh, to that time out in the spring, and uh, you can check it out on his website right now. In the meantime, he's going to be here in less than two weeks. In the flesh. November 18th. Uh, that event is going to be here at 7 p.m. You can find tickets on Eventbrite Facebook. Uh, Just Google search it; you'll be able to find it. And that event is going to be uh, him and Elliot Morgan. Hilarious, Elliot Morgan. He's he's really funny. I was watching some YouTube videos of him yesterday. I love his just dry
2: sense of humor. Yeah,
1: Yeah, and he's really he's a great YouTuber. He's one of those he's one of those people that can really create a funny video for for YouTube. And so, uh, Uh, I'm excited 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 to have him here. We're going to have with the the purchase of a ticket, you get Obviously, you get into the event, but we're going to have uh, McLeod Brewery is going to sponsor. So you get Cascale. Drinks. Oh, man. Cascale. Um, they're a local brewery. Really great. They have uh, offered to, have to, to sponsor. And then we're also uh, going to have Excess Energy, energy drinks. Uh, so if you, if you don't drink alcohol, uh, we're going to have a, a non-alcoholic option. We got your back. Through, yeah, through Excess Energy. So that's really nice that they've come on board to team up for this event. So all, all in all, it's going to be a great event. $20 and uh, we'll have uh we'll have tickets at the door so if you don't want to buy a ticket online we'll have tickets here um and uh it'll be a really great night it's great we're excited
2: so this conversation will be a uh, a little taste of uh, what you're going to experience with uh with peter rollins live here on saturday november 18th uh thanks so much for checking in let's get right into this episode peter rollins Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Mission Hills LA Conversations podcast. I am your host, Ryan. With me always is my partner in crime, Ryan. And this week, we are really excited to be hosting in the studio with us our good friend, Peter Rollins. Uh, For our uh, listeners who are still getting to know Peter, he is a successful author, publishing great books such as How Not to Speak of God, The Fidelity of Betrayal, and The Divine Magician, The Disappearance of Religion, and The Discovery of Faith. Uh, Pete's also the host of several workshops, uh, both here in the U.S. and abroad, but uh, we're really excited. We're going to be hosting him here at Mission Hills on Saturday, November 18th. Uh, we'll get to that in a little bit, but if you are interested in picking up tickets, you can head over to PeterRollins.com, click on the Events tab, and you'll find us there. You can also shoot on over to Eventbrite, and you can use the keyword Peter Rollins, and you'll find everything you need on the event there. Uh, we're really excited. We've got some great sponsorships. McLeod Beer uh, will be uh, providing. Uh, pre- some ale for us which is great we've got excess energy drinks and to kick off the night we are uh, going to be listening to the comedy styles of elliot morgan uh who's absolutely hilarious mm-hmm. so really excited to have him but first and foremost pete thanks so much for being here with us today we're really excited to have you uh in the flesh thank it's you great. it's great yeah. to be here with
0: the two ryan's yeah <laughs> fantastic <laughs> the two <laughs> ryan's yeah. yeah it's great it's great so it's easy to remember your names. Yeah, you never yeah. have to worry about it. Yeah, yeah. it's not
2: hard. So, so Ryan was going through uh, some, some old tweets.
1: So yeah, I was trying to think of like, oh dear. okay, well, yeah, <laughs> no, I was just like it's surfing. Scary. Tr- no, no, yeah. no, no, no. I try so, to delete the bad ones.
0: Yeah. So,
1: I mean, Pete, you know that I've like, you know, followed your work since undergrad. And, uh, you know, I remember back in the day, there was a great Twitter account that is no longer active. Uh. Yep. And I think you know
0: where I'm going I with do, this. indeed. I do <laughs> know where you're going. It's,
1: it's by the name of Pete Rollenstein. Oh, oh, I wasn't thinking oh, of that one. Oh, which one were you thinking of? Oh, there's oh. a
0: great one called Real Peter Rollins. Oh, Did you oh, ever yeah, know about a, that? No, that's oh. a good one too. But See, Peter
1: Rollinstein was pretty funny as well.
0: It was. It just didn't last it, very long. No, it it was just was a very short-lived, short-lived. little it like, moment.
1: It was like two years and like 10 tweets, essentially, yeah. is what it was. Right. Yeah. Whereas
0: Peter, it, Real Peter Rollins was a sustained attack on me for over two years. In they a, were... A vicious attack. <laughs> and of course, behind <laughs> it were yeah. all my friends. It was all my poker friends from Belfast, which I kind of began to get and realize it was them it's very northern irish humor in northern ireland you yeah. know if someone loves you if they attack you yeah and you know people yeah. really care about you if they actually set um a twitter site up to yeah, destroy yeah. you <laughs> um so yeah that was uh that was a lot of fun but pete Rollenstein, really? i did love i just wish yeah. it had been around longer
1: yeah i don't know if they ran out of material or if they just were like this is kind of too hard for us but anyways yeah. i wanted to go into the archives and pull a couple of uh Pete Rollenstein tweets out. Um, and so if you're not familiar, you know, they would mix the ideas of Peter Rollins with the philosophies of Joel Osteen and, and merge them into one tweet. So, uh, you know, one time uh, Pete Rollenstein tweeted, Our futures stretch out in front of us like a path engulfed in fog. In the face of such uncertainty, we must say, Victory is in my future. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. That's a good um, uh, another time, they tweeted, uh, "We must learn to embrace the idea that life is traumatic, and we don't know the secret. But God never ends on a negative." There Amen. Amen. There, Amen. Amen. You know, you know, Amen to that. that
0: was a very clever. By the way, do you know who was behind it? No. Um, Adam Moore i'm getting yeah yeah adam. Yeah, yeah you know yeah, adam, from yeah? waco yeah from waco of course yeah. that's where i first that's not where i first met you
1: in yeah. waco yeah 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 yeah, yeah that's yeah. right way back in the day because i was an undergrad and adam was actually my advisor and he's a terrible advisor is that right <laughs> adam, i if hope you're he's listening. not sorry,
0: sorry but he's um, brilliant profession. at twitter then because yeah he he was the guy i'm pretty sure he's the guy behind it <laughs> and um but it's very clever because actually the whole point of my work is you go into the darkness and it is liberating and life-giving. Right. So actually, you know, this, the whole joke of the, the tweets, of course, is you start off with this really dark, you know, everything is disastrous, you're going to die, everything's horrific, the world will end at a cold death, yeah. amen, yeah. blessed <laughs> is the world. You know, I'm yeah. actually going like, that, that Peter Rollenstein um, is actually just me. It's Peter Rollins. Right. You know, right, so right, the yeah. they, they, putting in the joke of the Joel Olstein is actually giving the secret of parotheology. theology. Yeah, really. The secret of parotheology uh, is the bad news is
2: good goodness. news. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's great.
2: They had no idea they were actually helping you get your point across. Right. Like, yeah. oh well actually, Adam <laughs> yeah,
0: although Adam is he's he was he's a guy, as you, you guys know, like you all set up a great um Uh, a community called Void in Waco, Texas. Mm -hmm. In fact, I was just talking to someone yesterday. He said, have you ever been to Waco? I'm like what? in Waco. There's actually yeah. there was a community that was living out and exploring the same ideas yeah. that I was doing with Icon. Like yeah. every, out of anywhere in the world, it's Waco, Texas, and Tasmania, Australia are right. the two places that I know their communities. Yeah. and so Adam he he really understands this work right. deeply.
1: And it's interesting because you know I grew up in Waco, and most people when they hear Waco, they think of Branch Davidians, right? Yeah. Like they, they, every time I say, "Well, oh, I'm from Waco," people are like,
0: "Yeah." Oh. That really captured the imagination. Symbolically, there was something about that event that um, uh, is endowed with meaning. So yeah. yeah.
1: They actually, uh, on American Horror Story last night, the newest episode, they had uh, the the whole season this this year is Colt. American Horror Story: Colt, okay. and they actually had uh, they played out with their actors, uh, Branch Davidians, uh, last night. It was really, oh wow, yeah, it was really interesting. Where they take their same cast and they always play different characters and roles. So they played out Jim Jones, uh, the David Kresh, and the Branch Davidians in the same cast, and it was really interesting. And
0: do they try to keep true to the events, or is it?
1: Yeah, I mean, this one was just they were doing little five minute bits on what it was like, and then throwing you back into the modern day because there's a, the whole story is following this cult in the current day, like post-Trump era or whatever. Um, and so they were telling these stories through the lens of the current cult leader okay. in, in the show. And he was talking about how these David Koresh and Jim Jones were heroes of his, you know? And so uh, he's right. kind of explaining the this them to his followers. So, yeah, well, it was kind of interesting. But anyways, w- growing up in Waco is really interesting because – you know, you say you're from Waco, and people are like, oh. But Waco actually had this strange, uh, it was very involved in the emergent Christianity movement. Uh, it had a lot of people, uh, you know, connect some, mostly connected with uh, Baylor University that were really uh, exploring the ideas of radical theology. And all of this was, you know, when I was in high school and early college. And so it was a very interesting place to kind of come of age with a lot of this stuff because most people will hear Waco and they'll think, oh, that's just like a small town in Texas, but actually there's kind of this underbelly of people asking interesting questions. Yeah, yeah. I
0: find it, I mean, with existentialism, the philosophy of existentialism, uh, it grew up not in the cultural centers of Europe, but largely in these kind of cultural supposed backwaters of Europe. Because in a sense, existentialism was a critique of the dominant thinking and the avant-garde and whatever was cool. It was this... um, it's very much how to be an individual and be able to think for yourself. And I do, to be honest, tend to find that it's the places that are in the kind of the background, the places where there's a lot of religious oppression or political oppression or cultural oppression, are actually the places where some of the most uh, incredibly fertile thinking is going on. So I I love places in America. Like Middle America is my favorite place because I find there... There's some of the most creative and interesting thinking, as well as passion, which is missing sometimes on the East and West Coast. You know?
1: Yeah. So.
2: They also put cheese on everything in the Midwest. Do well, they? I like that a lot as well. Oh, man. You go into any restaurant and they're yeah. like, would you like cheese on that? <laughs> would you like cheese on that? On your cheese. Yeah. yeah. Yep, yep, it's absolutely. like, I ordered a cheeseburger. I know. <laughs> <laughs>
1: and you're from Michigan, yeah. other of of the Ryan. Yep. And uh, is that, do you consider yourself from the Midwest? Like, is that...
2: Only by association. Okay. People people associate Michigan with the Midwest, but honestly, Michigan is a little bit farther removed from the Midwest gotcha. because we do have, we have a little bit of that independence uh, because we are surrounded on, on the sides by water, you know, and we have our own peninsula, you know, uh, it, we're a little cocky Ooh. about that, you know, <laughs> uh, so yeah, I think. Michigan is a very interesting, because as I'm listening to you talk yeah, about yeah. like forward thinking and, and how you're talking about how um, you know these ideas kind of come uh, birthed out of these really dire circumstances, Michigan has really always been just like a row the boat kind of state. And even when things got really bad with Detroit and things like that, it was like things are just going to get really bad and then they're going to kind of shake out for a little bit and then we'll start to rebuild on our time. And so that's why I think you start to see Detroit now kind of having a comeback. And eventually, I feel like our kids... Detroit might end up be like a Seattle, where they're yeah. like, "Oh, you've got I got Detroit. You Detroit's Detroit. my favorite city in America." I mean, I it's it. yeah. yeah. I, I didn't spend enough time there because I grew up in the middle part of the state, um, so I didn't spend enough time in Detroit. Um, I, I mostly spent time in the suburbs, which I found that when you tell people like, "Oh, I have family in Detroit," and then you list the suburbs, they yeah. hate you yeah. <laughs> because <laughs> that's not Detroit, man. Yeah. Yeah. And I and I get that now yeah. um, from from having the relationship with some tried and true Detroiters, but yeah, I mean, there really isn't. That desire to think about something different in terms of like philosophy or approaching life in a different way, they might try to do things a little bit differently. But Michigan has kind of always been a blue collar yeah. union state, and I think it's going to always be that way. Uh, mm-hmm. I I don't think much is going to change it. Yeah. They they tried to bring in tax credits to film movies there, and I mean they're going to blow up the Silver Dome in oh, really? like a w- in, like. 10 days and they filmed a ton of movies there hmm. it's a That's brilliant a of amount of stuff it's a brilliant yeah. place to to have films made and yeah. it would be great for the the state but um yeah i don't know don't have to get into that but <laughs> 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 I
1: want to get into inner workings, yeah, of, uh, get into inner workings Michi- of michigan local politics right <laughs> yeah so all right well uh so i'm interested like we're talking about you know where we're all from um, a lot of people that you know, either find themselves coming through Mission Hills LA or Los Angeles in general or just you know, kind of Christianity in, in the U.S. at this point in time, uh, we talk to a lot of people that are in this process of kind of working through or talking through their faith, coming out of uh, maybe evangelicalism like you, Ryan, yep. or um, they're in that process where they're throwing away sort of these old concepts or ideologies of uh, their faith or God. And um, I, th- I would thought it'd be interesting to maybe kind of talk back with uh, you, Pete, and trace back your uh, entrance into uh, kind of the faith understanding. And you kind of came into uh, a fundamentalist form of Christianity. And I'd be interested to hear kind of, since we come a lot of, across a lot of people, and I bet a lot of the listeners of this podcast are in that process of a new understanding of faith what was that process like for you of coming into a fundamentalist Christianity and then working your way out?
0: Yeah, well, you know, I, I didn't grow up in right. a, a church environment or anything like that. And right. I came into it when I was a late teenager. Now, the thing I would say is it was a very positive experience for me. I mean, the, my conversion at 17 was uh, a profoundly powerful event in my life that kind of ruptured me fundamentally. It, it, it was, I mean, I've talked about this before, but it was a kind of a religious experience in the sense that it wasn't an experience of something. It's what transformed my experience of everything. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a true religious experience isn't you feel something, you know, like you take wow. drugs and you feel something. It's, it's what transforms your way of being in the world and your way of interacting with the world. So I experienced this And then I, as you said, kind of got involved in kind of the confessional church and uh, the evangelical confessional church. And in a sense, what happened there is I began to cover over that initial experience with a new set of beliefs, a new set of practices and ideas. And as I progressed, I realized that actually the, 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 the scandalous kind of powerful moment that I experienced at 17 was not a change of beliefs, a change of political affiliation, religious affiliation, or cultural affiliation. It was a kind of a breakdown of those things. And then what I realized is that as human beings, we always are trying to construct new meaning, new worldviews, new ways of having the right answers, certainties, and satisfaction. And I realized that I was covering over this fundamental rupture in my life with just a new provisional set of beliefs a new set of ideas a new set of whatever and as I explored my faith more deeply and engaged with the, the, the tradition um, I discovered a whole stream of thinking which sees Christianity not as another worldview another set of beliefs another set of practices but rather Christianity as a fundamental um, reconfiguration of your life and a way of breaking you free from meaning, a way way of breaking you free from beliefs, a way of existing beyond belief. So that's where kind of my development into uh, parotheology began.
1: Right. And that's interesting. I mean, were there... So you start coming across this this change and transformation. Um, For you, is it happening... Is it a slow process that you're working through this, these ideas privately? Or did you kind of have people around you to talk through this with? Because I think a lot of the people, at least that I talk to, that are kind of wrestling with this and they're on the same trajectory, uh, they feel fairly isolated and, yeah. and isolated from their, maybe their old faith community or even their family. And uh, I'd be interested to hear like what that process personally was for you.
0: Yeah, you know, I very early on in this journey, I set up a community uh, to kind of help explore these ideas uh, because uh, I didn't want to be alone in it. Mm-hmm. I think when, whenever you whenever you believe something very strongly, that gives a lot of security. Um, You don't necessarily need a community as much. Uh, Hmm. But whenever you're beginning to question your beliefs and your practices and your politics and you're beginning to look at that critically, then community becomes very important because as you deconstruct all of that, uh, you can find that your world feels like it's falling apart. You can feel isolated and alone and rejected. So I set up a community called Icon and that was where I kind of, in, in other words, I almost went, there isn't a community out there for me in Belfast where I can yep. do this. So I'd better make one. <laughs> I better create one. Right, and yeah. that's, that's how ICON started. Yeah. And for 11 years, I was part of that community. Right. And in that community, that's where I really cut my teeth. That's where I got deeper into these ideas and, and learned how they looked in practice.
1: Right. Well, that's interesting because I think that's uh, something that, uh, I'm not sure if I've heard you say it in that particular way where, oh, I didn't have a community, so I just I just started one. And I think maybe that's an interesting place for most people to think about uh, where they're at personally of, oh, I don't have my own community uh, nearby, but maybe they take some impetus to say, well, you know, if there's not one in my town or city or wherever they're at, uh, maybe I could put it out there. Maybe I could start something like this. Yeah. Um, that was one out, of to work out these ideas. Yeah,
0: that was one yeah. of the beautiful things I learned from my involvement in this confessional church, the charismatic church I was in. Was one of the things they were big on is don't sit around and complain, do something. Like they were real activists. They were they were sensed if like if you've got a critique of the thing, then go and do it. Yeah. So I, you know, I brought that with me. it was like, okay, well I don't have a community, so what do I do? Well, I have to I have to put the um the flare up and see if there's uh. people around. So I'm always recommending people do that. Yeah. Cause I'm saying like, if you live in a halfway decent sized town, mm-hmm. believe me, there are people who are asking these questions and rethinking their faith. Um, all you have to do is find a way to discover them. Right. Um, yeah. but they are there. They're right there.
1: Yeah. That's great.
2: Um, I, I was kind of reflecting and I was wondering if you would mind sharing um, because you came into this at, 17 you probably had some assumptions and some maybe preconceived notions on organized religion or christianity or things like that i was i'd be wondering um maybe what did you hang on to or what was it about christianity that even intrigued you to explore at that age in your life and and um of those things, like, did, did, they, did you carry those things that you had at the beginning along with you for
0: a while, or, or when did they start to fall away and this new yeah. idea started to come about? You know, in many ways, I didn't really have much of a preconceived idea of Christianity at all. Um, I grew up in a family where my father is very quietly religious, a very, and he has a very, what C.S. Lewis would call a mere Christianity, a very, mm. you know, kind mm-hmm. of personal faith, but he never, like, you know, puts on anybody else, and uh, I went to high church Anglican services occasionally um, when I was very young, but I had no real conception of what Christianity was. I was very much a natural atheist, a uh, very European atheist in the mm-hmm. sense of it wasn't I denied the existence of God. I just, I just thought every, nobody believed in God. I mean, I was surprised when I <laughs> discovered people who believed in God. I remember yeah, yeah. I was, I think I was seventeen. It was the same year and I discovered a friend who believed in God and I was just shocked. Um, that someone believed in God, you know? um, and that, you know, so my my kind of non-belief has always been very natural. Yeah. Uh, so when I came into the charismatic church, I don't feel I felt like it was all brand new. What was happening? I had a very um, dramatic kind of conversion experience, and then find myself in a whole new environment. Hmm.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah.
0: Um, and so, it, so it meant that whenever I got to the point of questioning it all was actually relatively easy for me to do it it wasn't stuff that i would carried with me for 17 years right. that i had to like unpack Um uh, i kind of just started to get the feeling that the experience that, that the heart of christianity wasn't wasn't the confessional church today isn't the place to really get to the heart of that message mm-hmm. now that's like i love the confessional church i do so much work in the confessional church and i believe the confessional church can get this To this radical core, Mm -hmm. but um, uh, I felt that there's something that 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 church is missing.
1: Yeah, and that's uh, honestly a pretty similar experience to me is coming into uh, a Christianity without those preconceived notions of oh, this is what. You guys are so lucky. This is what I (laughs) have. You guys are so lucky. uh, (laughs) And so when I started hearing, uh, you know, when I started reading people like Rob Bell or McLaren, those are my, and and Peter Rollins, those are my (laughs) sort of like entrances into uh, thinking about faith and God and Christianity. And so there was always this questioning core to it and really trying to get down to okay well how does this work out in my life Um, what are things that are uh, going on in my uh, subconscious or unconscious that I am carrying around and how can actually the um, religionless core of Christianity bring about those real uh, transformation kind of like what you were talking Mm -hmm. about earlier Peter is just um, okay well does it transform everything that you do in your life uh, because growing up in texas you're growing up in a culture that is um it's very common just to have that cultural christianity there's like the large umbrella that just hangs over the culture which is um this is just a way of understanding your uh, community your town Um, this is sort of the rhythm of life type of Christianity, Mm. but it doesn't affect people's lives. You you don't see the ethic towards it. And so um, whenever I kind of came into Christianity, I started really questioning that ethic piece of why isn't this transforming the culture at a deep level where we can actually see it in society. And so that's where I started really trying to break break down those um, ideas, but I didn't have a lot of hurdles to overcome coming into it. Yeah. Man,
2: I I I feel like I could, like, be an Olympian with the hurdles. I mean, you know, youth group for us was like, you know, you talk about questions and, and things. like. It was like, here's a sheet of questions for you to talk about in your group. But you don't need to worry about anything that's not on this page. And it's like, well, what if we have other questions? And I'm like, whoa, what do you mean other questions? Yeah. You know, so that, I think that's what really attracted me to your work, um, when I started to read it was it was just filled with the space to doubt and to question and I don't want to jump into our certainty discussion too early but really I think that has been one of the most liberating aspects of your work in general is just giving people that freedom to have space to think about things that might be a little different that might be a little uncomfortable that might uh, make you feel yeah. like you're Like you're like you're a part time atheist or something. Um, so I don't know. I just having grown up in a place where doubt and questioning was not welcome and was dangerous and was of the devil, being invited to 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 do that.
1: Did people used to say that? Like that's of the devil. Oh absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Doubt and doubt in questions, that is the devil. That is the devil creeping in your thoughts.
1: Wow, that's interesting.
2: You don't even have control (laughs) over your own brain, mind. It's like, do I put on one of those tinfoil hats from, uh, signs? Hmm. So anyway, um, (laughs) moving on from that. Good reference. Yeah. Yeah, Moving on from that. Um, (laughs) I would love to, as we move forward to continue to unpack this, uh, this idea of certainty, um, because I've been going over your book. Um, I've been reading the idolatry of God again, which, uh, is great, just great book. You so can get great, on Amazon. Please leave a review. Yeah, it's so great. But it seems like throughout that book, the more I read the pages that I've underlined and other people have underlined, what that book is really lying out is a a thorough account of the missteps in interpreting scripture and looking at scripture as providing certainty. Um, so I would love just to, if you if you wouldn't mind, just maybe give us a little bit of a taste of what kind of breaking through certainty is like yeah. and, and how that has um, informed some of the later hmm. work that you've been yeah. doing. Yeah.
0: And, and in the way I would kind of phrase it uh, in my kind of later work and now is that in a sense, I am very interested actually in certainty, I'm very interested in belief. Um, the, the idea that I'm trying to explore is that that our beliefs are not mostly conscious, we don't know what we believe. It's a very strange thing when I hear people say that they know what they believe, or they ask me, what do I believe? Um, as if we're transparent to ourselves, you know, like right. I am I, conscious of my beliefs. Our mm-hmm. consciousness is broadly a defense mechanism to protect you from seeing your beliefs. Mm. Hence, you go to a therapist or something, because it might take you years to actually discover what you believe, um, discover what you really think. And you're con- so You might say, "Oh, I love my mum," but you know you're like you haven't t- you haven't called her for a year, right? <laughs> or I think my brother's great, but you have this dream where you're killing him, <laughs> and then uh, you, you realise that maybe deep down you're really resentful of him. Right. Um, all of these things, like, or you you look like you're really confident. You're always out at parties, always socialising, uh, but it actually hides the truth that you are really depressed and lonely. Mm. So, coming to know what you believe. Uh, realizing that you're not transparent to yourself is a very difficult task. And for me, Christianity is partly about helping you confront your beliefs. And that's the mm-hmm. key. It's not giving you a set of conscious beliefs to have, but right. it provides certain mechanisms to come to know what you believe. Yeah. Like, for example, prayer. If you, if you pray out your inner being, like you, you actually say the things that are going on, the moans and groans of your heart, what will come out will be crazy and chaotic and violent, mm. um, but it'll help you come to know yourself. Just like writing right. a love letter helps you come to know yourself, even though you're writing it for somebody else. So when I embrace doubt, complexity, and ambiguity, partly I want to begin to break away the husk so that we can start coming to see what we believe, what animates us. Uh, an example I've used before, but um, you know, when none of us believe that a duvet cover can protect us from a knife attack or make us invisible to an intruder. Right, but if we hear a creak downstairs, we put it over our heads and we were like all Harry Potter style, right. think it's a magical sheet, right? <laughs> the truth is you do believe that, you just don't know you believe it. Mm. Like what happens is we have beliefs that are socially unacceptable. So what we do is we repress them. They don't right. go away, they stay. They just mm. We just hide them from ourselves, mm-hmm. but they still exist. Um, so... In one strange sense, when I talk about doubt and uncertainty, I'm actually trying to get to certainty. I'm trying to get to what do you really believe? Mm -hmm. And you might be terrified by what you discover. Because the other thing people think is, so one is that we know what we believe. The second is that what we believe coheres with reality. And the third is that we would want to share what we believe with other people. Mm. But I want to say, well, one is no, our beliefs are not transparent to ourselves. Two, when you come to know your beliefs, you might go, "Oh my goodness, my beliefs are ridiculous!" Right? You know, I believe in monsters because every time I hear a creak under the bed, I won't put my foot down. I don't, I don't think monsters exist, but I still believe in them. Mm-hmm. And then, thirdly, some of your beliefs you'll realise are the last thing you want to share with anybody mm-hmm. because they might be violent, they might be disgusting, they might be terrifying. You, you'd only tell your closest friends. Mm-hmm. And grace is actually um, a grace community of grace is one of the few places that you can actually be honest about what your beliefs are mm-hmm. and that's why i think communities of grace are so important because we all we all believe in censorship uh you know mm-hmm. in psychoanalysis the idea is we all censor ourselves all the time right we, you know we we all we are always hiding what we think from ourselves yeah uh so how do you create a space where we can be honest it's very difficult
1: yeah that's interesting and i've <sighs> I'm interested, too, in how this plays out in secular society as well, oh, yeah. because this is not just an evangelical
0: oh, not at all, yeah. Christian
1: problem. This plays itself out in, in all sorts of secular society politics. And um, I was reading an article, I think it was last week, uh, in Vox, and it was talking about how the U.S. Uh, really has an epistemic crisis in what we're willing to sort of take as truth and what we're willing to... Uh, believe, and I think now they had a study that came out this past year that um, it's over fifty percent of people that consider themselves republicans uh, actually think that the academy is worse for people than yeah. better, and so you have this real switch in just general at least in the u s but probably a lot of uh, western uh culture is experiencing this um, in some way politically or culturally right mm-hmm. now, and I was wondering if you had any thoughts on how the anxiety that exists in society um, creates a situation in which people cling to a type of fundamentalism. It may be a secular fundamentalism, uh, but this idea that we have, we're we're in a period where people are really questioning ultimate truth or basic facts, especially from uh, traditional sources of Uh, what would be considered respected areas of truth like the academy or media or that sort of stuff
0: yeah i mean in psychoanalysis um and uh, especially the theorists who use psychoanalysis for for political um theory there's an idea that you have to understand the uh the place of pleasure in our beliefs and our ideology that um that basically we don't call to ideologies because of facts because of epistemology we we hold to ideological principles and positions because we're getting some sort of pleasure out of mm. that so a lot of my work I mean, i'm mean, i very interested in the philosopher slavio shizek and also todd McGowan are two yeah. great thinkers who explore this in relation to politics yeah um, and even tad delay talks oh yeah about tad DeLay, absolutely.
1: The, the the pleasure uh, aspect of it he, yeah. he talk he explores that a lot
0: yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, no. This is, this is a move that was made a long time ago, actually, in theory, because it became obvious that that uh, changing people's minds, showing people data and evidence of, of things, doesn't convince anybody. You know, we um, are very few people are convinced by that, and if they are convinced by it, it's because there's a certain pleasure. <laughs> you uh, have to yeah, find uh-huh. a pleasure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Um, and and then of course the the real interesting thing is why? What pleasure do we get out of giving ourselves to? ideological systems that damage us Hmm. and that's a very key question um but it's a very psych this is why i like psychoanalysis because it it offers potential way of understanding why we do that right now the other thing is you were talking about christianity but i I don't want to move away from that so um where do you want to go psychoanalysis christianity somewhere else
1: well i mean i i always think that the the link between um the way humans function, right? Because for me, it always, it comes down to, which, I mean, I'm not, um, you know, nearly as read in, uh, you know, uh, psychoanalysis um, as you or, or, you know, Tad or anything, but I find it interesting the way it works in Christianity, in politics, in secular society, or even um, uh, new atheism, uh, where people gravitate towards these uh, new systems of belief and how that you know, is so different from something like uh, pyrotheology theology, a radical theology uh, that basically says, no, we need it. It is what haunts us. Mm. You know, that's what it haunts our system of belief. It it breaks it down and always is able to um, give us a mirror to to look at ourselves, as a, opposed to just adopting a new camp. Yeah. You know, we're yeah. we're adopting a new set of beliefs, which. Um, You know, maybe there is maybe you have a different connection, but I think it it functions similarly whether we're talking about um, uh, evangelicalism or new atheism or another political party. It's that humans are adopting uh, these new sets of truths, as opposed to what we're talking about, which is the mechanisms to question.
0: Yes, I mean a religious definition of conversion is movement from one worldview to another. Mm. So whether you go from Islam to Christianity or Christianity to Judaism or Judaism to Humanism. Mm-hmm. conversion in a religious sense and a popular sense is movement from one position one way of seeing the world to another right but with for me radical theology and a radical reading of christianity is that conversion is uh, freedom from conversion conversion is the moment in which you are freed from the need to give yourself over to another system of beliefs and practices it's that which kind of ruptures this very Mechanism so that you take responsibility for your own life, for your own beliefs. You take responsibility for your actions in the world. This, for me, is the real the good news of Christianity. It is a it is a move towards radical responsibility uh, for what we do in the world.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's an interesting uh, that's an interesting way to approach it. I I don't I don't know necessarily if uh, if that message is, is kind of becoming. Clear with a lot of the the things that we see every day and the headlines that we read about uh, a more cohesive approach to even certain things like climate change and issues that really just are not you know bipartisan issues. Uh, You know we were we were talking even just briefly about some of the gun stuff that's been happening and and again you know we we had another shooting this weekend and so I, I I find that what's troubling for me right now is that disconnect with what you're talking about how. Things that we know should be addressed and topics that shouldn't be so widely debated, but are becoming very bipartisan, are becoming polarizing issues that are pitting people one on the other side of the other. And I just wonder where where the the language that we use is going to um, either start to help or not not um I guess in a way well, like, like not, not yeah. continue to continue to make the divide because I think a lot of the language we've adapted right now yeah. uh in, in stuff that you hear on one side or another um really continues to 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 push that divide. Right. You mm-hmm. know
1: I think that's why we need art. huh You know, I mean, that's what art I think art really provokes us out of these um, um, you know one side of the debate versus the other, you know. Uh, vi- visual artists, uh, musicians, uh, poets have the opportunity to um, create an entirely new mechanism of communication and language that I would hope shed light and take us out of the yeah. polarization. I don't know.
0: Yeah. I mean, when you, basically, when there is suffering in an individual or in a community, a trauma of sorts... Uh, the, the individual or the community adopt defense mechanisms to protect themselves from that suffering. Um, there's a number of defense mechanisms. They're very useful to know. One of them, uh, is, you know, splitting where you say I'm innocent and that person over there or that community are guilty. Mm. This is also called the beautiful soul syndrome where you have to maintain your own beauty and purity by externalizing your violence and creating a scapegoat. Another mm. now. The thing about defense mechanisms is that they're not good or bad. They are kind of necessary defenses against deep trauma and deep suffering. However, the defense mechanism will eventually start doing more damage than what it's protecting against. Mm. So eventually the splitting in a relationship, for example, where the person you broke up with is so bad and awful and you're innocent and good. Just that stops you from going mourning the relationship of going through the complexity of the back and forth and ultimately moving on. Hmm. So what it takes is somebody to come in at a certain point and say, Listen, I think you're just hurt. And if that's said at the right time, the person might go, Yeah, you're right. And you know what, I've been blaming that other person so much when, you know, at least some of it was my fault. Yeah. So what art does, I think in America at the moment there is deep hurt on all sides. Uh legitimate pain. And we see defence mechanisms. As a result of that suffering. And those defense mechanisms actually hint at that suffering. And what art does, and the art of a good sermon, the art of a great song, is it helps to lower the defense mechanism a little bit, just enough so that you can begin to see the suffering and begin to work through it. So, for example, in the Second World War in Britain, if someone said, Oh, you know, not all Germans are bad. Uh, that person would lose their job, you know, that person <laughs> would be put in prison, right? Because that wasn't the right time, it was like you were in a war it was crazy but but with war, which is an ultimate form of splitting, right, there's just good and bad and you have to destroy the other mm. but w- eventually when w- wars either destroy somebody or eventually the defence lowers enough so that novelty can occur and what novelty means is that your defence is lower enough so that some new way of discussing can, can occur that's actually productive and useful. Um, I tried to actually give an example of this by doing a whole festival on C.S. Lewis in Ireland just recently. Because in one sense, people do festivals around someone they agree with. Even, you notice this if a religious conference or something, it's always yeah. around about what you believe. Yeah, yeah, but I was thinking, what about yeah. doing a whole event around someone you don't agree with? Right, right? Mm-hmm. But someone who you respect. I think uh, C.S. Lewis is a very honest conservative, a very intelligent thoughtful, beautiful writer, someone from Northern Ireland, someone I respect. Mm-hmm. So what would it mean to do a whole festival around that and to say, what what do I look like to C.S. Lewis? Mm. What would he critique in me? How can I engage in an argument, a discussion with him? As a way of, again, going, let's try to break down these, these uh, battle lines. And let's try and... So, like, one practical example is, can I find someone, an honest and thoughtful person on the other side of my position? Not just anybody, not this crazy person, but someone who's honest and thoughtful. And can I listen to that? And can I go, okay, they're not going to change me probably, mm-hmm. but will they help me see something in myself that I'm missing? Mm. Because I need your eyes in order to see myself.
1: Right. Yeah,
2: That's an interesting approach. And that's a lot of what the the basis of this podcast is about, is creating entry points to have dialogue like that. because. I personally feel like, and, and I think this is what I was trying to say earlier, I feel like overall, America has forgotten how to have conversations about some very difficult topics mm-hmm. and instead have just uh, relied on other people to sort of speak eloquently or speak for us on certain things. Yeah. And ultimately, there are... Too many voices, and there's too much diversity for one person to be able to cover everything and say, "Well, this is kind of how it's going to go, and this is how we're going to move forward." Because you've got one group saying, "Well, I agree with that at a certain point. I agree with that at a certain point." And again, this is both in secular culture and in in religious doctrine as well. You see this in the in mm-hmm. the fracturing of millions of denominations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I just find it uh, I just find it really interesting that uh, th- th- that we've just gone yeah. to this to this level um yeah. w- with that with that so i lost my train of thought yeah but in, but you can <laughs> see
0: you can see like in social media that you know, a lot of it comes from hurt yeah whenever people react violently you know you can sometimes feel it in the in posts and comments and responses that there's a there's a yeah. pain behind it mm-hmm. there's a suffering behind it and we can all get caught up in that all of us no one is immune Mostly it's our mum or dad who can make us really annoyed, you know? Mm. Like what we could take from a friend if our mum says it. We're like, oh my goodness, you know? And part of the, the difficulty of being human is to, is to stop when you feel like that and to go, oh, why did I react so violently to this? Uh, you know, I might disagree with it, but why did it provoke me so much? Mm. And to be able to just create a minimum of uh, distance from your emotional explosion, because sometimes we actually are fighting against our own demons, things that are within us. Yeah. Sometimes we love the people who we hate. I mean, this is a big thing. You know, we need our enemy like a hypochondriac needs their disease. Right? <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. we just, we just obsessed with that, you know, tr- what Trump's going to say next. Cause we get so much libidinal investment in it. Yeah, yeah. And so we're, we're caught up emotionally in our, in, in whoever we disagree with, you know? Mm-hmm. So, a lot of a lot of the work I think is is how do we take a breath. It's a very simple thing, but how do we take a breath and look at why we react against something and then maybe go, Okay, I'm gonna try not to let that control me and I'm gonna to try to, you know, enter into a a better type of conversation. But that's very difficult. So we have to have grace for each other, you know, because we're, yeah. we're going to miss the mark quite a lot.
1: You just sounded very L.A., Pete. I know. <laughs> I, I By breath, the way, yeah, I hate that. Class. I heard
0: that. That's why just I had to stop. I'm going like, to I, I delete that. Take that out of the, <laughs> the podcast. I don't want to sound too L.A. and <laughs> all of this. Well, that's going to be our intro you for know, you. Mm.
1: My wife teaches yoga, so, you know, I, I could sniff that out pretty. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just take a breath. Just breathe in through one nostril. Breathe out through the next. Doing just... already. Right. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah.
1: Oh man, I had a question too before. <laughs> yeah, I know. So did I. Oh, oh, I totally gosh, forgot. That's great.
2: No, nice. I'm glad you brought up the part about the hypochondriac and the enemy because um, I was actually privileged enough to hear that full conversation oh, at the oh, letter liturgi- at oh, the just yeah, yeah, yeah. gathering. Um, and it was really, it was a really. Uh, I'll be honest. It was a really confronting way to think about how we approach this uh, idea of an enemy and how right now in our culture having an enemy is it's like an obsession it's yeah. it's like a way of life it's like if we don't have one who are we mm. what yeah. is our purpose and what you were talking about how is like a, hy- a hypochondriac loving their disease and about the that disease giving them purpose yes um and i was yeah. you know ryan and i are, are reading through uh, henry Nowen's the wounded healer and um even when they talk about, you know, just like life and, and struggling through life, they gave this example of of a of a person who was going in for a very difficult surgery. They could possibly die. They talk with this chaplain. They have a very interesting interaction with the chaplain. And long story short, this person dies during surgery. And what now sort of unpacks through the rest of the chapter is how important it is for someone who is in a traumatic place in life to know that there's someone waiting for them. To know that there's at least one person out there who is concerned for them or has their well-being in mind. And um, just in the general conversation that we've been having about community and about, you know, acceptance and about a place to work out these ideas, we talked with Brian McLaren about how, you know, a lot of the alt-right or alt-left groups provide these sort of uh, identity. uh, They provide essentially an identity for people who are really just searching for that just identity right um community yeah that community yeah. you know and so uh i just think about you know uh, i was going to ask you because you've been you've been bringing up psychoanalysis a lot and i think psychoanalysis who
1: doesn't what's that who doesn't bring up psychoanalysis? yeah i know right, right. i mean it just <laughs> in general everyday conversation yeah, right.
2: but um you know psychoanalysis and going to therapy from my upbringing um that's equivalent of like having an exorcism. You know what I mean? Like uh, if you go to psychoanalysis, yeah. like you're, you're basically just going to talk about your, your pee-pee or your hoo-hoo the whole time. You know, go they ahead. think it's all about sex. So I would love to know from someone who has a healthy understanding of psychoanalysis, what are we missing? What, is, what, is, um, what are some of the benefits of getting to know ourselves that, um, that we're missing? And maybe what are some of the, some of the ideas about psychoanalysis? maybe just a, a weird way to ask the question is why are we so uncomfortable with the idea of psychoanalysis?
0: Mm. Yeah. I mean, and it is interesting. The, uh, the level of discomfort. So uh, the name Freud can bring up, for example, I think that, you know, you could do a psychoanalytic interpretation of that mm. very thing. Um, in Europe, it, psychoanalysis is more accepted in the academy. It's, it's part of actually philosophy. So I trained as a philosopher, uh, in continental philosophy and, you know studying psychoanalysis is just part of the canon you know you you study a little bit of freud but more lacan lacan mm-hmm. is just one of the thinkers who if you're going to do a phd in continental philosophy you're going to have to you know engage with his work even even as an undergrad you know uh, that his work would come up so that distinction between philosophy and psychoanalysis isn't isn't that big it's just it is the theory of human subjectivity what what it means to be human what is the unconscious it's it's a theory that helps us understand uh, what, what it means to be human. Um, but the interest in move towards psychoanalysis and contemporary theology and philosophy um, mm-hmm. is partly because psychoanalysis, it works with the same kind of ideas, interestingly, as a lot of Christianity. It works with the idea that, um, I mean, <laughs> one of the things in psychotherapy, one of the differences is in psychotherapy, which is a very good thing, uh, psychotherapy is very important but often a psychotherapist works with the idea that we want to get better so just like if you break your arm your arm wants to get better in a sense you know if you just mm. look after it the right way nature will take its course and in the same way if you come to me uh, as a psychotherapist I go like well you want your life to be better and if so if I can give you a little bit of a good advice or point you in the right direction or orient you you know things will get better mm. But psychoanalysis starts off with the idea that we don't want to get better, that we will sabotage ourselves, that we will often do so many things in order to destroy our lives and the people that we love and ourselves and our environment, our world. And this notion of the death drive is very similar to a you know, kind of Christian notion. Um, the, 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 the confessional notion is sin, but there's a way of right. taking it away from its religious connotation. But this idea that, there is this destructive element. And psychoanalysis offers a way of understanding that. Mm-hmm. So that's one interesting thing. Psychoanalysis also gives us an answer to, you know, how do we kind of find freedom from this destructive behavior? Again, that's very connected to religious questions of salvation. How do we get freed from this death drive? Mm-hmm. So um, that's kind of partly why I'm so interested in psychoanalytic theory. Yeah, uh, And it gives a, it, it's, it's very... Um, it fits very neatly with radical theology.
1: Right. And, I mean, you can tell me if I'm wrong on this, but you bring up an interesting uh, part when uh, we, <laughs> we've we talked about this, but someone at uh, last year's Wake, um, at the very end, like last question of the day during the Q&A was like, um, what about Jesus? <laughs> and Pete just goes, uh, uh. Cool. <laughs> that was it. That, that was, was it. it. It was like a, it was a long-winded question, and by the end of it, it was like not a question anymore, and so it didn't really merit much of a response. Okay. And so I felt so bad. I was like, I don't know how what Pete's going to respond from this, and he just like shook his head, and that was it. But you offer, um, you know, a radical reading um, in, you know, in different places in, in your work. But uh, you talk about Jesus as trickster, and I wonder if that maybe kind of relates to what you were yeah. just uh, referring.
0: I mean, in that example actually, probably what was going on in my head was, you know, it's such a it was you know, such a, a, a big question to unpack. So, I, so basically my brain probably just short circuited and I was like, Cool. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I wish I could say something. Like it's almost like right. I'm either gonna be talking for two hours right. or for none, you know. It was like a four minute nice. question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but like it would have taken yeah. me a lot. And but it, it was interesting because I, I remember the the guy and talking to him afterwards and thinking, yeah. well, it'd be great to do a whole thing around around that theme, yeah. which I might do in a future wake event. Um, but yes, part of the part of the difficulty with answering the question is um, paratheology offers a different key for understanding Christianity. So there's always a kind of a key, a way of thinking that that is um that unlocks everything. And so when you're jumping into someone else's understanding of Christianity, whoever it is, right. sometimes it's very hard to kind of, you know, orient yourself yeah. um, or do an alternative. So, you know, I, as soon as someone asks me about Jesus, I want to kind of then have to rethink the entire New Testament. <laughs> but but, but you, you do give <laughs> yeah, a, good, yeah. a good way in. And a good yeah. way in is this idea of the trickster, which um, Kester Bruin talks about brilliantly in some right. of his work. Um, a trickster is this uh, figure, this God kind of character who is often playing with our cultural and our religious and our political understanding. They, they play against authority, but in a way to break new things open. So they're kind of, they're stealing from the gods for the sake of humanity. You know, there's mm-hmm. the trickster figure. Um, you know, Jesus can be read as that Whenever you look at Jesus, he's, he's always saying enigmatic things, challenging what we think about the world, challenging how we perceive the world. I'm always amazed that people can create a form of belief out of Jesus because yeah. in one sense, what he's saying is always designed to rupture, yeah. which is kind of what parables are. They rupture your thinking, whereas a mythology kind of gives you a frame to think. So see, reading Jesus in this way, you see like that he is continually... Uh, breaking with everything we think about who is inside, who is outside, who is good, who is bad, who is right and who is wrong. This is why Kierkegaard, who is a thinker I like a lot, he he says like, okay, you can say anything you want about Jesus, right? anything you want, but please don't ever tell me that he was wise. Please don't ever say he was wise or ethical because those are like two of the worst things you could say. Mm -hmm. Um, And this kind of begins to tease out the difference between liberal theology and radical theology Mm -hmm. because in liberal theology, Jesus is seen as a wisdom figure and an ethical figure. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if nothing else, Jesus is a wisdom teacher, you know. we we'll forget about everything else. He's a wise guy and, a, and an ethical guy. Mm-hmm. But for Kierkegaard, it's like, no, 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 oh my goodness. Whenever Jesus shows up, he's the one who critiques our whole idea of ethics and our yep. whole idea of 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 what's wise and what's right and what's wrong. Right. I mean, even the Bible itself, Kierkegaard wrote a whole book on it. Abraham and Isaac, he's like, if you think that any wisdom teacher or any ethical teacher is going to say to you, yeah, kill your son because you heard a voice, that's not going to happen. There's this right. really difficult uh, story at the beginning of the text um, that that problematizes the very idea that you reduce this radical core to ethics or wisdom.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. Man, that's so good. Um, so I – so uh, Ryan – Uh, brown is the director of community at mission hills christian church um i'm technically the pastor uh which is technically (laughs) gosh it's it's still um so if you're listening to this and you're like this guy's like yeah i'm the pastor of mission hills christian church which is still a weird moniker for me to take on just because that's not how i've really ever been addressed up until like the last year but obviously well people will walk through the doors and they'll like address you as pastor. And so yep. I'm kind of like getting used to that. Um, but what I've noticed in my first year is uh, going back to a little bit of uh, psychoanalysis, maybe, is uh, I've experienced a lot of transference in, mm. in being pastor. Yep. And um, I was wondering what your take on something like transference in the context of a church is yeah
0: yeah yeah and actually um i did a talk on this recently which is off free online if anyone looks up the last guru Uh that will it goes into more detail in this but yeah this happens a lot i mean transference is a technical term i just want to unpack it a little bit Uh um for your listeners where it's it's where people take a early type of relationship from the past and they put it onto somebody in the present Mm. So a pastor, you know, they take an early type relationship. But it's it's a particular type of relationship. It's that relationship that you had maybe with your mother, where when you're an infant, mother is the name of God on your lips. You think your mother knows the secret of your heart, is there to answer your deepest needs and want. And so this idea that there's someone out in the world who knows the secret, not as an expert, but knows the secret of your heart and the truth and the answer to everything, there is a tendency for human beings to, to put that onto people, gurus, uh, religious leaders, whatever it is, that we find someone who we think has the secret. Now, ministers experience that a lot because they are, in a sense, the stand-in for the absolute. For people, they are the concretization, the incarnation of the invisible. In psychoanalysis, a therapist takes the transference on, right? They use that transference. But what they try to do for a neurotic, what they try to do is break the transference, not just with them, but with everybody. So the idea is somebody projects onto the therapist, you know, my unconscious, you know why I do what I do. You're going to fix me. And what they do is they help disillusion you of that idea. You realize a therapist doesn't know, right? But not only do you realize a therapist doesn't know, you realize that nobody does, Hmm. And that is the breaking of transference, where you're able to take on the mystery of your own existence and embrace the doubt and the unknowing of life. In the same way, I think, a minister, you have to take on that transference. And through the sermons and the music, the the art form of liturgy, through that, you help to disabuse people of that idea so that they become disillusioned not just with you, Oh, with everybody. <laughs> so in other words, you want to be the last guru. That's why yeah, the talks yeah. are called the last guru. Is <laughs> the last guru is the guru who helps you realize there is no guru. Right. And that for me is the, is the good news of, of church liturgy. Right. Um, now, and, but then what happens is you realize that the absolute is not some answer right there, but is found in the midst of a community living together, working together, loving together.
1: Right. Yeah, that's great.
0: So you're going to offer us, you're going to be with us in
2: about 10 days, about a week and a half. You're going to be here live and you're going to offer us uh, an exit. You're going to offer us an escape. Escaping the tyranny of certainty is the the title of your discussion. Um, I think what you were just talking about is a nice segue into that. So just give us, give us a little taste. What are we, what are we, what are we in for Uh, besides Elliot's hilarious jokes? What are you going to be giving us?
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I feel by the way, very much that this is like a math test where we're I'm showing my answers, but not my working out. So, you know, if someone likes what they hear, they might go, I like that. And if someone yeah. else doesn't like it, they go, I don't like it. But I feel like, you know, I haven't really been able to show what I mean when I say Christianity mm. is the breakdown of our need for conversion, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, you know, yeah, if you come to the talk, you'll hear more of the working out. Right. Um, and what I want to explore is this idea that Christianity um, is very closely connected with the absurd, uh, this was understood by Kierkegaard and by uh, Tertullian, I think was the first person to say it. He said, I believe in the, the crucifixion of Christ because it is absurd. Mm. And of course, that sounds ridiculous. Everyone disagrees with him. Either people say, I believe in the crucifixion because it's not absurd, or I don't believe in it because it is absurd. Right. But what does it mean to say I believe in it because it's absurd? That right. seems crazy. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: But if you think about the absurd, the absurd means something... Um, Albert Camus actually defined it beautifully. He said, it's where you encounter a universe that doesn't seem to give you what you desire, which is the answer, which is, you know, certainty, satisfaction, oneness, right? So we encounter a universe where we don't seem to get that stuff. That experience is the absurd. It's where our worldview breaks down and everything we thought begins to crumble. And what I want to look at is the idea that Christianity at its core is this experience of rupturing our core understanding of how the world works, what it's about, why we're here, what we're doing? Now, there are artistic forms of the absurd, like Dadaism and surrealism. There are musical forms of the absurd, which are like punk. There are political forms of the absurd, like Occupy. And I want to argue that, that these are that basically Christianity is proto-punk. Mm. Um, Christianity is an embrace of the absurd. And I want to kind of like draw out why I think that Mm -hmm. and also why that's so liberating and wonderful and positive.
1: Yeah. That's really good. I'm looking forward to it. It's just, just a
2: taste. Uh, so we're going to be in for a lot more. Um, yeah. I, I also want if you
1: if you don't if you didn't like this podcast then you can just come for the beer. So yeah. yeah. Be free beer, free yeah. energy yeah. drinks, free comedy. I know I mean,
2: nothing less. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I also want to just point people to yeah. the online content that you have because yeah. you were talking about some of the some of the materials that you have online. Yeah. Y- you are the champion of content online. I mean, you oh,
0: have all right. Oh because oh, yeah. I always feel like I do it so badly. Like I never no, quite. Very never quite yeah. do the technology right no i mean no. and
1: especially in the last year obviously you've uh, become really active on patreon which you were just at a, a conference yeah, right? right yeah, yeah how yeah. was that oh it was and lots of fun
0: you yeah. know I, I love what patreon are doing yeah i love how they're trying to help freelancers to re- connect directly with people who like their work yeah and cut out kind of like you know these big institutions where basically you know take all the money and you know right yeah because like it was set up by a guy who he was a Very well known musician. He was getting a million hits a month on like YouTube and he was like making less than two hundred dollars on on those hits, you know. So Patreon's a, a really interesting platform.
1: Yeah. So um, so if you're not aware, you can uh, always go to uh, you can go to Pete's website and uh, you can access all of his Patreon stuff there, where you can become different levels of, of monthly mm-hmm. subscribers. And if you go on Facebook or YouTube or SoundCloud, um, you can find a host of other uh, talks and different things from Pete. And then of course his his books are always a great place. So you can Google search them or look them up on Amazon. And yeah. um, oh, I
0: can tell you something as well. Nobody yeah. knows yet. Um, oh, uh, it's been ooh. set up for a while, but I haven't talked about it partly because I don't know if it's, if it's working well yet. But uh, we recently set up a, a, an iTunes podcast, which has just uploaded all of my SoundCloud talks. So there's ooh. like 65 oh, wow. talks. That's great. All if you look it for my name on uh, iTunes. On the podcast. On yeah. So yeah. Uh,
2: yeah. iTunes podcast, Peter yeah. Rollins. Same thing on YouTube. Yeah. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. Yeah, I mean, there are it. unbelievable. Uh, things that you can yeah. just—I mean—just hit play and yeah. see what you uncover. Yeah, it's yeah. great. Um, Twitter, social media, at um, Peter Rollins. You can find all that stuff. Uh, tickets, yeah. again, for our event are available on Eventbrite. Just use keyword Peter Rollins, yeah. or if you go to Peter Rollins. And you can com. actually buy
1: them on Facebook. I think. I think if you just find oh. the, the event on Facebook, you can you can purchase them right right in Facebook. So even better. Yeah, twenty bucks gets you beer, energy drinks great comedy
0: and tragedy even
1: <laughs> more tragedy and more yeah. tragedy but in the darkness victory is yours there it is. it is you've heard it first from you right. pete thank you so much for thanks. being here thanks for so having it. you yeah thank you thanks for listening to the mission hills la conversations podcast hey if you like this podcast Go find us on social media at, at Mission Hills LA and say hey. Or visit us online at MissionHillsLA.com or leave us a review on iTunes. We'd really appreciate it. And uh, as we're getting this podcast off the ground, we really appreciate all the feedback. Also, if you're in the Los Angeles area, we have a lot of upcoming events. You can find that on Facebook or on our website. And we'd love to see you at an upcoming event. And uh, we'll see you on the next episode of Mission Hills LA Conversations.